by Nutrition for Life, a broadcast of Purdue University Extension, where we cut through the hype, explore the science behind food and nutrition, and provide practical tips for incorporating healthful strategies into everyday life. Welcome back to Bite by Bite, Nutrition for Life. Tanya and I are continuing our conversation with Dr. Mattis on the macronutrient fat. In our last episode, Dr. Mattis shared with us the important role fat plays in our diet. Today, we are going to look at his personal research a little more and discuss how we can actually taste the fat in our food. So Dr. Mattis, while you describe your research to us, could you also explain how the use of fat substitutes in today's food system is impacting the way we taste the fat in our foods? For example, can we taste the fat substitutes the same way that we do fat? Yeah, fascinating question. So, so maybe I should start a little bit back and, and, and just provide a, a, some background for this concept. Um, uh, so fat in the food supply is uh, uh, derived from uh, a compound called triglyceride. Uh, it's actually kind of three fatty acids stuck together. And it's a very large molecule. And so for the longest time, people thought that it couldn't possibly be a taste stimulus because there was no receptor on the tongue that could bind with, with a triglyceride. Now, having said that, that, that was the view in the chemical census community. Um, but in the food science community, it was well known that um, there were sensory properties to fats that one had to be uh, cautious of because um, as concentrations of uh, fatty acids rise, there is an unpleasant sensation uh, that's detected in foods. And so the food industry has spent a great deal of time and money trying to keep concentrations of these fatty acids low. And, and so, um, uh, we've learned now that these fatty acids can be uh, uh, important signaling molecules. They can bind to receptors on the tongue. And that there probably is uh, enough of these free fatty acids in foods, even though the majority comes from triglycerides, uh, some of, enough of them are free to be detected. And even if those levels are low, we have enzymes in our saliva that help to liberate them. So uh, even though the view was that we couldn't taste fat for a long time, then the thinking now is that there probably is an adequate stimulus. There are these free fatty acids. Um, and so the question is, do they really activate taste uh, receptor cells? And one way that we measure that is by measuring the physiological response to sensory stimulation. Um, uh, so we have our sensory systems in order to identify uh, 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 nutrients in, and in the environment uh, that we should be ingesting, right? That we, we have systems that detect signals in the environment that either say uh, this should be ingested or this should be rejected. And the um, signal for fat has been hypothesized uh, to be a, a fatty acid um, that should promote the consumption of fat 
because we have essential fatty acid needs and it is a good energy source. And so all the indication was that we should have a sensory system that helps us find fat in the, in the environment. Um, however, as it turns out, that these free fatty acids are just awful. They, they are most unpleasant sensations. Uh, I have not met anybody that finds a free fatty acid to be a pleasant experience in the mouth. Um, and so it raises an interesting question about the ecologic validity of this, this argument that we have a sensory system to detect it and promote its consumption um, from the environment. There must be more to this story than, than we actually understand. Um, uh, there, we, we are worried about high levels of uh, fat in our blood after a meal in terms of cardiovascular disease, but when we taste fat, those levels do go up. And so they must be playing some beneficial role that we just have not identified yet. Um, so at any rate, the, the approach that we've taken is uh, that we put fat in people's mouth and um, we pinch their nose so they're not smelling it. And we put it in a, a medium so that they can't detect it by texture. Uh, so as far as we can tell, the only way they sense it is through taste. And what we find is that when we do that, their uh, blood triglyceride levels, blood fat levels, rise. And so what that says is that there clearly is a chemical sensing mechanism in the mouth um, that discriminates between fat and, and other components because that doesn't happen if you put sugar in the mouth or protein in the mouth. Um, uh, and that it, it evokes some kind of physiological response. And what we think is happening is that it is um, mobilizing fat from the cells in our intestine into the bloodstream. So after you eat a meal, uh, the food passes through your intestine and different uh, enzymes are secreted that break that food down and into component parts. So starch is broken down into smaller uh, molecules of glucose and, uh, and so on, and fructose and, and uh, sucrose, and uh, proteins are broken down to their constituent amino acids, and fats are broken down they're, these triglycerides are broken down to their constituent fatty acids. Um, and, uh, uh, and these are then uh, absorbed uh, across the wall of, of the intestine and, and enter the bloodstream. So there is a process where, where that is relatively rapid because we have to absorb these nutrients after each eating event. But we've learned that a fair amount of fat is retained in the cells that line your intestine. And we're not sure why. Uh, we think it has to do with providing a source of energy because those cells have energy needs too. So it helps them stay uh, healthy and alive and, and able to do their work. Um, but when we put fat in our mouth, it sends a neural signal to those cells and it says basically to move that whatever fat is still in those cells out into the bloodstream. So we see this, this rise in blood fat levels just based on the sensory stimulation alone.
Um, so there's a physiological and a health implication of this, but from our perspective, it's evidence that something is being detected in the mouth because it's causing a change in the body in a very specific one related to fat metabolism um, elsewhere. Uh, so, uh, so that's part of the story. And, and uh, we've also done just sensory work and we give uh, people uh, fatty acids to taste uh, and we can measure uh, that people can discriminate very low concentrations from the medium it's embedded in. So for example, if you have cream cheese that's low fat and full fat cream cheese, um, only the full fat cream cheese actually causes this rise in triglyceride levels. The non-fat cream cheese doesn't do it. So there is a chemical sensing system in the mouth detecting the fat in that cream cheese. Um, we've coined the term oleogustus uh, for that sensation and we talk about sweetness and bitterness and umami and saltiness and so on. Uh, there isn't a, a word that we all recognize that describes the sensation for fat taste. Uh, so we, we've coined the term oleogustus. Oleo uh, from the Latin for fat and gustus from the Latin for taste, so fat taste. Um, uh, and and uh, the, sci the chemical census community, the people who study taste and smell are now uh, increasing research in this area, and I would say there is a growing body of evidence supporting the idea that we really can taste fat, uh, uh, not just smell it and not just feel it. Wow, I don't even know where to start with my follow-up on that. I have so many questions to dig into there. Um, so, you know, we've talked about how critical fat is to our body functioning. We literally cannot live without it. Um, we, you also was just talking about the taste sensation, making us enjoy the food, allowing the, the foods to be palatable, it impacting the way our body um, operates on the cellular level, and so on and so forth. But I feel like um, in the mainstream, when fat is talked about, it's almost entirely in the context of, of calorie control and weight reduction. And so, and that has helped, you know, as you alluded to earlier, you know, we first started thinking about low fat diets as a, as a way to um, treat cardiac patients. And then, I don't know, was it in the 80s, it became really mainstream. And then suddenly the food industry just blew up with low fat, no fat products which still remain today um, and I have family members that you can go to their house and you will not find anything in their house that does not say low fat or no fat on it despite the fact that when you compare the labels there maybe is not even a trivial difference but anyways the point I'm trying to get to I guess is how does a consumer decipher through all of this and balance that they want they want food that's palatable. They want food that has a positive sensory experience. And then I don't even think we touched on yet the role that fat plays in satiety. Um, how do we balance all that with some of these other health messages that less is more, it has too many calories, et cetera, et cetera. Like, so 
that was a whole lot. I don't know if you're feeling ambitious to try to help me unpack my question there. Right. Well, yeah, there's as much in your question as, as the questions in your mind. Um, uh, so fat is, as, as I said before, the most energy dense uh, uh, component in our diet. Uh, so gram for gram, we get more than twice as many calories from it as compared to carbohydrate or protein. Uh, so from that perspective, we do have to be cautious about how much fat we consume uh, if we are interested in moderating our body weight, uh, which isn't to say that we don't have to be cautious about carbohydrate as well. We, we have to, the, the bottom line is that it's total energy intake that is responsible for energy balance. Um, I know there have been diets that are proposed that are very high carbohydrate or at the other end, very high in fat uh, to help manage body weight. And each of them has their advocates and their critics. Uh, but I think the science says that there isn't a single best diet or a single best macronutrient that is fat carbohydrate ratio uh, for optimizing uh, body weight. Um, each of us has a different metabolism. Each of us has a different set of flavor principles that we prefer. Uh, each of us has a different lifestyle and a different culture, which emphasizes different flavor principles and, and different experiences. Um, and so one has to find a, a, uh, a diet that, uh, in both in terms of composition and sensory properties, that uh, they find enjoyable. A, a diet that isn't followed is not going to be healthful, right? So you, you can design a diet that has any number of properties, but if people don't eat it, there's no point. Um, so the first principle is whatever diet one uh, designs, it has to be uh, acceptable from a sensory perspective. Uh, the food industry knows very well that sensory properties are the primary driver of food choice. Um, so we can offer coupons to make it cheap. We can advertise the nutrition properties. Uh, any number of things. Uh, we can emphasize convenience. So you don't have to cook it long or much or whatever, uh, but if it doesn't have the sensory properties, it's not gonna be consumed on a repetitive basis. Um, so that, that's the first principle. Um, having said that, uh, we, we have to be cautious that we don't make all of our decisions based on just um, uh, eating as much as possible to achieve that, that sensory experience. Um, uh, we want food to be palatable, but we don't want palatability to be the primary driver um, uh, that leads to positive energy balance and, and weight gain. And so it, it's, it's as exciting as a bag of nails, but the best dietary advice is balance, moderation, and variety, right? Not too much fat, not too much carbohydrate, but a balance between them. And, and so Diets that have somewhere between 20 and 35% of energy from fat are, are probably within the range of being healthful. Um, and, and there is room for discretion there. 
Uh, one doesn't have to follow the Mediterranean diet or the DASH diet or, or any other specific diet you want to uh, identify. Individuals can maintain healthy body weight on any number of them. And so um, I always like to help break down for folks when we, when we recommend numbers or percentages to them, like when you just mentioned the 20 to 35% is the recommended um, percent of your calories from fat. So um, the U.S. Dietary Guidelines promotes an eating plan that is formulated around the concept of my plate. For those of you who haven't seen that, it's a visual depiction of the five food groups. Half of your plate is fruits and vegetables. A quarter of your plate is um, carbohydrates or s some sort of starch. A quarter of it is a protein, and then you have your dairy on the side. So if someone is, without having to use any sort of tracking software or to sit down and calculate it all, if they were following this visual depiction in their meal planning and serving themselves at meals, would they automatically be falling within those recommended percentages or would you recommend some, that folks do some calculations? No, absolutely not. Uh, I, I think if you follow my plate, you are probably in a very healthful, safe zone. Um, it, it's uh, very good advice. Um, you know, the, the uh, professional societies that are uh, issuing dietary guidance, uh, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, the American Heart Association, American Diabetes Association, uh, almost all of them are now recommending pretty much the same thing, even though they have different foci, one diabetes concern, one heart disease concern. Uh, they're, they're basically all saying eat a variety of fruits and vegetables, um, have uh, grains, at least half of them, whole grain, um, have low-fat dairy uh, and low-fat meats, uh, moderate sodium intake, uh, moderate intake of, of added sugars, um, just very sort of broad recommendations rather than specific uh, gram amounts or percentages. Um, it's, it's like I say, there, there isn't a single right or wrong. Um, having a balance within broad categories is sufficient to have a healthful diet. I think while we're having this conversation about fats, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the different kind of fats, such as unsaturated, uh, saturated fats, trans fats, uh, poly, mono, you know, all of them. Uh, so do you have any, um, do you do any research, I guess, on those different types of fats? Um, I was kind of, I'm thinking twofold here, I guess. We have the health of knowing saturated fats should be limited in our diet, but when you've done your sensory testing and tasting them and you say that when it's in your mouth, it releases um, fat into our bloodstream, um, is it releasing different types of fat, whether unsaturated or saturated? Um, I, I know it's a triglyceride level within our uh, body, um, but I'm just curious on how any of that works. Yeah, well, the fat uh, that is in your intestine or in the cells that line your intestine or in your blood are all determined by what you eat. 
Um, so if you eat a diet that's high in saturated fat, then that's what's going to show up in your blood. If you eat a diet that's high in poly or monounsaturated uh, fatty acids, then that is, is what will appear. So it's not, the, the taste is not, as far as we know now, uh, uh, specifically moderating a type of fatty acid. Um, uh, but to the points that we've been making before, you're, you're exactly right. There are different kinds of fats in the diet. Uh, monounsaturated fats are a healthful uh, fat, and, and we get them from things like nuts and vegetable oils, like canola oil, olive oil, peanut oil, uh, avocados. Um, uh, they, they can help reduce uh, blood cholesterol levels um, and, and, and uh, reduce risk for uh, heart disease. And then we have polyunsaturated fats, which are uh, liquids at, at room temperature, and they come in from sunflower oil, soybean oil, corn oil, um, certain fish, high-fat uh, high fish like salmon and herring and sardines. Um, and then, uh, and, and polyunsaturated fats are particularly uh, healthful in, in terms of uh, heart disease risk uh, and, and uh, lowering what we call bad cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, um, and, and possibly raising the good cholesterol, HDL cholesterol. Um, and then we do have saturated fats that are derived uh, primarily from animal products, so high-fat dairy and, and fatty uh, meat products. And it's not that they should be absolutely eliminated from the diet. Uh, they have their roles too. Uh, but they should be restricted to somewhere between seven and uh, not more than seven to 10% of energy. Uh, American Heart Association is now recommending, recommending less than about 7%. Other groups are at about 10% in, in that ballpark. Um, so Nobody is recommending elimination of saturated fats. It is possible still and, and fine to consume red meat and, and cheese and, and products that still contain uh, some saturated fat. Um, again, it's balance. It's balance. These foods, uh, for example, meat is a wonderful source of protein. Uh, and iron. Uh, so you can't judge it just by its saturated fat content. Um, uh, so so it's, you have to look at the totality, actually not just the food, but the total diet itself. Um, humans are extremely flexible. Uh, one of the reasons we have survived and thrived as a species is because we can uh, uh, accommodate, adapt to, and, and optimize health uh, based on diets that vary in, in nutrient composition, as long as we get all of the essentials, as long as it's varied enough and balanced enough, enough uh, we can do all right. Um, so saturated fat should be watched, uh, but not eliminated. I love this discussion of balance because um, you said earlier that balance isn't near as exciting as some of these fad diets and things that are out there. Um, but yeah, it's very important. And when we're thinking about fats, instead of completely eliminating them, you know, we still need to have those fats and have those healthy fats, um, the unsaturated fats that you talked about, uh, fish, nuts, avocados, um, those healthy oils and things while trying to limit our saturated fats, um, but not having to get rid of them because um, 
I mean, I'm sure many people, myself included, would be very upset if I had to cancel all the bacon in my life um, and not get to have, especially right now with wonderful tomatoes as well, not getting to have BLTs all summer long. Um, so yes, we need to concentrate on our health, um, but also think about just that enjoyment of food and have that balance um, like you keep repeating today. Yeah, I, I think if, if you are looking for a signal about what is a healthful diet and what is not, um, then the warning signal should be a diet that uh, overemphasizes any single component. Uh, extremes of any nutrient um, should be a warning signal uh, to an individual. As nutrition educators, a man after our own heart, we preach that all day, every day, I feel like. So, folks, I think you've heard this enough times, but I'll just, I'll just give you my summary again. Nutrition is about balance. Fat is a necessary part of our diet. It is essential. It is, we actually have components that are called essential fatty acids because we can only get them from our, from our diet. These fats help form a part of every cell. They help us adapt to stressors on the cellular level, help our body respond and function and carry out processes, carry those essential fat-soluble um, vitamins, um, among a plethora of other things that we've just talked about. But again, it's about that balance rather than an absolute amount of any one nutrient um, and that there's not really any one prescriptive a narrow ratio that we can tell you is going to give you um, the perfect health outcomes that we all strive for, but that it's about doing the best we can every day while still enjoying the meals that um, we are able to have um, with our family and friends. And so with that, Dr. Mattis, do you have any favorite resource on these topics that you would point folks to? Uh, in terms of a, a professional organization's recommendations, I mean, the dietary guidelines are, are uh, I think, a very sound and reasoned uh, set of recommendations. And as I say, uh, over time, I think there has been a growing consensus among all the different um, uh, professional societies towards what a healthful diet looks like now. Um, and, and so, as I said before, you know, uh, variety of fruits and vegetables every day, variety of grain products, including whole grains, um, uh, uh, a variety of fat sources um, within moderation, um, uh, moderating sodium intake, moderating added sugar intake. Uh, these are all just common sense and reflective of uh, a balanced and moderate diet. So if we focus more on whole foods as opposed to the things that have been um, completely converted to a different form unlike its original product, we are probably on a pretty good path is what I hear you saying. and. Yeah, yes, that's true, but but I also don't want to say that people can't enjoy processed foods too. Anything can fit. It's just how often you eat it and how much of it you eat when you do eat it. 
So it's perfectly all right to, to include a, a soda in your diet or a, uh, a donut in your diet or whatever it may be. It just has to be done in moderation. So with that, we always like to wrap up with some fun questions. And so if you were a food, what food would you be? Huh. Uh, well, maybe. Yeah, I was gonna say I was gonna say ice cream. Uh, uh, ice cream is such uh, an interesting food because of the transitions it undergoes when it's being consumed from a salad to a liquid, and uh, uh, it's highly palatable. Uh, makes people happy. I love it. I love it. And that just brought back some memories of making homemade ice cream uh, with my family as a child. So thank you again for joining us today, Dr. Mattis. Thank you everyone for listening in and joining us for this episode of Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life. Be sure to find us on Facebook and Instagram at Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life. Until next time, remember to ask questions, challenge the myths, and stay true to you.